Well, thank you, Tony. And it's an honor for me to be here. And um, first of all, I wanted to let you know how much I respect your pastor, Rob McCoy. He is a real hero. I'm just so proud to know him. And you're blessed to have him as your pastor. And so uh, he and his wife, Michelle, and the whole family. And um, and so they're over in Israel. And I believe that the Lord is going to touch them and they're going to come back on fire with more insight and more uh, Holy Ghost anointing. So uh, also uh, I have books in the back and I normally do uh, they're twenty dollars each and you buy one, uh, you buy two and you get one free. But because you're so special, I'm doing it. If you buy two, you get two free. Right. So it's twenty dollars for one. But if you buy two, you get two. So you get four. So anyway, um, also, that's because I sent a whole lot of books, <laughs> more than I anticipated, so that we don't have to bring them home with me. But you get the, to the benefit. I'm going to go through some stuff, and by the time we get done, we're going to look at Israel and see some really special stuff. So, with no further ado, there's my website, uh, AmericanMinute.com, if you want to sign up for the daily email that Tony told you about. And there's approximately 6,000 years of recorded human history. I went through some of this the last time I spoke, but I'm going to add new stuff. So, um, you think 6,000 years, right? Writing was invented around three or 4,000 BC. Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Today, that's Iraq. And take a stick, poke it in clay, right? That's the beginning of writing. 3,000 BC is when Egyptian hieroglyphics were invented. And around 2,600 BC is when Chinese invented pictograms the yellow emperor on bamboo annal books. But you round it out, three or 4,000 BC, we're around 2,080. That's around five or 6,000 years of records. And Franklin Roosevelt said 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. So he's using the number 5,000. Uh, Richard Overy, editor of The Times Complete History of the World, said no date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago and the beginning of a written or pictorial history. Uh, Daniel Webster, Secretary of State, said miracles do not cluster and what has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. Again, 6,000 is the number he uses, and something unique happened here. And James Wilson signed the Declaration and the Constitution and was put on the Supreme Court by George Washington, smart guy. He said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. So we got 6,000 years of records, and something unique happened here. 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. How many of you have met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it? Maybe a grandmother? We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human civilization. But it's been a 6,000-year quest to rule the world. So now that we have 6,000 years of records, what do the records show? They show that power keeps wanting to concentrate into the hands of one person. And we have the Bible story of Nimrod, Tower of Babel. The Jewish commentators say Nimrod wanted to build a tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it sort of had this defined in-your-face attitude toward God. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. So we see this first illustration of concentrated power defined against God and separated power. So everyone, hold up a fist in one hand and say concentrated power. Concentrated power. Fingers apart with the other. Say separated power. Separated power. Then back to the fist. Concentrated power. That's world history. 
For most of world history, power is in the hands of the kings, pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, sultans, and every now and then people stretch the rubber band and experience, uh, experiment in ruling without a king. But in times of crises, the rubber band snaps back. So, uh, if you ever seen the Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> they blow this metal killer robot from the future up, right? And then it starts melting into little silvery balls and it rolls back together and it comes back again. It's like, how do we get rid of this thing? It's like God took this Tower of Babel and confused it and scattered. But every generation since has a new Nimrod wanting to rebuild the Tower of Babel, but only on a worse scale. It's like an antibiotic-resistant virus. It sort of comes back, and the next time, it's worse. And so uh, you see the uh, Nautilus shell does this little circle, then a bigger circle, bigger, bigger circle. It's actually a ratio of expansion called the golden ratio or the Fibonacci sequence. But if you plot these empires out throughout history, it, it took me a, a while to research all of them, but, but you start off with um, Nimrod, then you got Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, around 2500 BC, and he has this new invention of a wall built around the city. And then you have Sargon of Acadia, and he conquers from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, 2250 BC, he has the biggest empire. And then you have Egyptian pharaohs for around 2000 years, they have the biggest empire. And then the Chinese emperors, and then Tilgath Placer of Assyria has the biggest empire, but he's outdone by Cyrus of Persia and Darius, and then Alexander the Great has the biggest empire, but he's outdone by Chandra Gupta and of India, and then uh, uh, Julius Caesar, and uh, then the Roman Empire is conquered by Attila the Hun, and then Justinian has the eastern side, and then the Muslim sultans conquer from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, uh, all the, the Ottoman Empire, and uh, Charlemagne has the biggest empire in Europe, and Genghis Khan conquers from Korea to Hungary in 1200. Uh, A.D., killing 30 million people, but he has the largest contiguous land-connected empire. Uh, Kublai Khan, Montezuma's got the biggest empire in Central America, king of Spain, king of England, king of France, but ultimately the king of England was the most powerful king on the planet, and he had a global empire upon which the sun never set. He was like a globalist. And um, now, if you look at these ancient history, three things keep coming up. Uh, they transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculture. And we see the Bible story of Adam and Eve are plucking fruit off a tree, but then Cain was a tiller of the soil. So we see this transition from hunter-gatherer to agriculture. Once civilizations transition to agriculture, they have to know when to plant crops. And so they would build these big, immovable structures to observe the stars, to know when the seasons are going to change, to know when they're supposed to plant the crops. And then they would have someone that would climb up this building, the Stonehenge, Ziggurat, Pyramid, whatever it is, and come down with the secret knowledge from heaven on when you're supposed to plant the crops. And they would begin to portray themselves as the divinely appointed intermediary between heaven and the people. And so now the people uh, have this intermediary that they go through, and he, he is this dictator. So they call it the divine right of kings. But the Babylonian Assyrians, their leaders were king priests. The Egyptian pharaohs were son of the god Osiris, the Roman emperors. It was the cult of the deified or divine August Caesar. Chinese emperors ruled by claiming they had a mandate from heaven 
Incan emperors claimed to be delegates of the sun god. Caliphs claimed to be the successor of the messenger of Allah. India, Raja, which means king, uh, were a semi-divine caste of rulers. Uh, Japanese emperors uh, were heavenly sovereigns, and then they Christianized it in, in Europe and called it the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so whatever my will is must be God's will because he put me here. Then the French Revolution comes along and they deify the state. Uh, the state is God walking on earth and so forth, Hegel. And so now if you're in charge of the state, you're the equivalent of a god. And so we see this tendency for power to want to concentrate. It's like the pull of a magnet. It's like gravity pulling a satellite back down to earth. Power just flat out wants to concentrate. And um, uh, Gandalf tells Frodo in the movie Lord of the Rings, he says, always remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. And I think it goes back to the fall in the garden and selfishness being spliced into the human DNA. And you have Cain killing Abel and one king taking a kingdom from another king. St. Augustine called it libido dominada, the lust to dominate. And again, whether it's Cain or Abel. So you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground. One of them is the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. <laughs> you put some natives in the woods. One of them is the Indian chief. And you put some people in an inner city. One of them is a gang leader. And all a king is, in a sense, is a glorified gang leader. It's a hierarchical system. If you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Or you're a slave. And so it's this pyramid structure to society that repeats itself all around the world. Atahualpa, the king of Incan Peru, uh, King Kamehameha in Hawaii, the African chieftains and so forth. And so you got the pharaoh or king at the top. He's got his officials, scribes, his soldiers to enforce his will. And then the slaves are at the bottom. And uh, so, again, they called it the divine right of kings where the creator gives the power to the king and he dispenses it to the people. And so in the 15 and 1600s, Spain had the biggest empire. And then the Ottomans for a while had the biggest empire. Here's Catherine, the great of Russia, 12 time zones, all controlled by one person, the empress of Russia. And then the French had the biggest empire for a while. And uh, Louis XIV, the sun king of France, he's called the sun king because his subjects were planets that revolved around him every day. He said, I am the state. Talk about an ego. And then he says, it is legal because I wish it. Well, that's easy. The law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a really powerful army to force you to obey. And, uh, and then the British Empire, I mentioned, was the biggest empire the planet had ever seen, from Canada to Australia. And uh, King, here's King James I of England. He said, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. And again, the most powerful was the king of England. So it took centuries before America was given this opportunity of this 6,000 years of history to break away from a king. 
Now, we're going to pick up in history and see how it turns into America. So Muhammad conquers in Arabia, and the rightly guided caliphs conquer Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom. And they conquered Jerusalem, which had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine. And the Muslim caliph Umar conquers Syria, which had been completely Christian. Matter of fact, the name Christian was first used in Syria. And then the Muslims, Amir ibn al-As, conquers Egypt, which was completely Christian, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel. And there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century, right? St. Augustine of Hippo was from Carthage. And then they invade Spain. Spaniards are still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. Muslim warriors are on their Arabian horses with their stirrups and these scimitar swords. In 10 years, the Muslims conquer all of Spain, carry away over a million into slavery. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians, and they'd collect donations at church services to ransom back your friend who was captured. Anyway, they crossed the Pyrenees. Pope Gregory puts out a plea that anybody that could fight should join Charles Martel. And he's the grandfather of Charlemagne. He stops the Muslims outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., just 100 years after the death of Mohammed in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in a 100-year military campaign. And since this is the first century of Islam, some Muslims look to this as their example, the same way Christians look to the first century of Christianity as our example. And so in the 1300s, they control this enormous area, and then they invade into what is today Turkey. Back then, it was all Christian, right? All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Turks. And uh, all these letters in the New Testament to Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia and Corinth and Philippi, all those cities were conquered by the Muslim Turks. The, The Greeks begged the West for help. The West sends help. It's called the Crusades. When they fizzle, the Muslims conquer Constantinople in the year 1453. And why is that significant? Constantinople was the New York City of Europe. It was where the East and West met. And it was, you know, founded by Constantine, and they had the biggest church in the world there, uh, the Hagia Sophia. And anyway, uh, so in 1271, Marco Polo, you know, the game, the kids play around the pool, Marco Polo, he travels from Venice, Italy to China, and he works for Kublai Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. And Marco Polo brings back to Europe spaghetti noodles, gunpowder, thread from worms, silkworms, China plates. Uh, burning rocks, coal. Uh, the Chinese invented the pinata, the compass, the wheelbarrow, the Pony Express. The Chinese invented paper cur- from tree pulp. And what did they print with paper currency? The first paper currency in the world was China, Chinese, during the Yuan Dynasty. That's why they call their currency the Yuan. So China was technologically superior to Europe, and India had teas, dyes, and spices. But when the Muslims conquered Central Asia and sacked Constantinople in what year? 1453. It ended the land trade routes. And so the Europeans were thinking, gee, how do we get over there? Well, in 1498, Vasco da Gama from Portugal goes around South Africa and makes it to Goa, India. Well, that was 1498. In 1492, a couple years earlier, a guy from Genoa goes to the king of Spain and says, I have an idea to get to India and China. Sail west. Runs into some islands. He's convinced he made it to India, so he names the people he meets the Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians if it had not been for Islamic Jihad. So all... (laughs) So all those people, all those people that hate Columbus, 
need to turn one chapter back in the history book and see the very reason Columbus set sail in the first place was Islamic Jihad cutting off the land routes to India and China. Anyway, as the Muslims are invading Greece, they are destroying churches and libraries and museums and artwork. And so the Greeks are fleeing further west to Florence. And this flood of Greek stuff into Florence, Italy is called the what? The Renaissance. And uh, they also flee with their Greek New Testaments. And so as their Greek churches are being smashed, like the city of Ani, uh, in, in today Turkey, but it was the Byzantine Empire. It was a city of a thousand and one churches. The Muslims leveled it. And so as these Greeks are fleeing, they're going into their old dusty libraries and pulling out these forgotten old books that are the Greek New Testaments. And they bring them to Europe. And the European scholars for the first time are seeing it in the original. And they begin to compare the Latin translations with this Greek. And they say, hey, the, the Greek's a little clearer. And so it starts this movement to really want to understand the New Testament. And this lays the foundation for the Reformation. So Erasmus was a scholar. He published the first Greek translation of the New Testament. Who was his friend? Martin Luther. Now, uh, we're going to see there were some other people that tried to get the Bible in the language of the people, but it was before the printing press. And so in 1455, you have Gutenberg inventing the printing press. And so now when Luther translates the Bible, it can spread. It's almost like um, he has a Twitter account. It's like, we want to control the message that comes from the White House out. And here you got this guy just, you know, President Trump just Twittering, right? So, so what they try to stop this message. And now with the printing press, Martin Luther can get it out. Anyway, so the uh, Victor Hugo, well, you know him because he wrote Hunchback in Notre Dame. Um, he says, the 15th century, everything changes. Human thought discovers a mode of perpetuating itself. Gutenberg's letters of lead supersede Orpheus's letters of stone. The invention of the printing of printing is the greatest event in history. It is the mother of revolution. He's, Victor Hugo continued, whether it be providence or fate, Gutenberg is the precursor of Luther. And so now we got some things going on. The Muslims are conquering. The Greek scholars are fleeing west. They're translating the Bible. But now it's in. And so Martin Luther uh, nails his 95 debate questions on the door of Wittenberg Church on October 31st, 1517. And uh, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the most powerful guy in the world. Uh, he's 25 and Martin Luther's, I think, 34. And um, he says, OK, we got a whole bunch of monks on one side saying this. And we got this one monk on the other side saying that um, I'm going to go with the many. Uh, and so you're no longer you're an outlaw. And uh, before he could get killed, Martin Luther's kidnapped and put in the Wartburg Castle by Frederick of Saxony. What does he do? He translates the Bible into German, into Hochdeutsch, high German. And uh, now in the meantime, in 1529, we're talking 12 years later, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna under Suleiman the Magnificent. And so here's Martin Luther. Uh, and he says, the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord, our God. If the Turk's God, the devil is not beaten first. There is reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. Uh, he goes on in the preface to the book of Revelation. Martin Luther says, the second woe, the sixth evil angel, the shameful Muhammad with his companions, the Saracens, who inflicted great plagues on Christendom with his doctrine uh, and the sword. And another Luther's works, he says, yet it is more in accordance with the truth to say that the Turk is the beast because he is outside the church and openly persecutes Christ. Another place, Luther writes, the Turk is the flesh of Antichrist, which slaughters bodily by the sword. 
And he says, the fight against the Turks must begin with repentance. We must reform our lives or we shall fight in vain. Our great and numberless sins and our ingratitude have earned God's wrath and disfavor. So he justly gives us into the hands of the devil and the Turk. Anyway, so we got this Turkish Muslim Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent controls this enormous area that all used to be Christian. North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, uh, Turkey and into Eastern Europe. His counterpart is the Holy Roman Emperor who sat at Martin Luther's trial. Uh, now he's a little bit older. He controls Spain and Portugal, uh, the, all the uh, Netherlands and Italy and in the New World. He's taken the gold from the New World to fit out his navy to fight the Muslims f- from taking over the Mediterranean. And the Philippines are named, named after his son, King Philip of Spain. So these are the two most powerful kings in the world. Remember I talked about the most common form of government's a king, and there's this global effort to want to get global power, and if it wasn't for death, one of them would have had the whole world under their thumb by now. And so in in that sense, death is a blessing, right? You know, uh, you ever see the movie The The Matrix with Keanu Reeves? And and so the Keanu Reeves character is running, and then there's anybody, because it's a computer-generated world, I won't get into all, but anybody could be turned into the bad guy, Mr. Anderson. So he's running past a bum, and all of a sudden the bum transforms itself into the Mr. Anderson. It's like anybody could be turned into a dictator, because we all have this fallen, selfish human nature. People say, well... I'd be a good dictator. It's like, okay, let's, let's say you, you are. You're re- doing really good. And then you have a sister with a teenage son that drinks and drives, and he's partying, and he hits somebody with a car and kills him. And now this teenage son is facing life imprisonment or, or at least a, you know, a couple decades in prison for manslaughter, and your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away half his life. It wasn't his fault. Those other kids talked him into it, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say to your sister? Well, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. It just happens. Power concentrates. There's favoritism, corruption. Anyway, so the two most powerful kings is the king of Spain and the Muslim sultan. And the king of Spain is Catholic. And from his point of view, he has a double dilemma. Protestant Reformation on one hand, Martin Luther. Muslim invasion on the other hand, Sultan Suleiman surrounding Vienna. So Charles V does something unprecedented. He makes a deal with the Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. It is the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. And in this treaty is a little Latin phrase that had enormous repercussions. What was the phrase? Cuios regio ius religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. In other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against these Muslims who are invading Europe because they want to kill us all. And it worked. But in the next century, different kings believed different things. And so northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran. Switzerland, Calvinist. Scotland, Presbyterian. Holland, Dutch Reformed. Greece was Greek Orthodox. And Spain, Portugal, France, Austria, Italy, Poland, Ireland, Roman Catholic. And England was Anglican. So again, prior to the Muslim invasion and the Reformation, all of Western Europe was Catholic. After the Muslim invasion and the Reformation, every king got to decide what's going to be believed. And so if you didn't believe the way your king did, you were persecuted. You were considered treasonous. And so there was a sudden mass migration of people in Europe fleeing from one country to another simply for conscience sake. 
And so it was one Christian denomination per country. What the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. If not, you fled. So we're going to focus on England because that's where the founders of our country came from. Henry VIII was Catholic. He was married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And uh, she did not have a son, a daughter, Mary, but not a son. So Henry decides to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world. Plus, the king of Spain had invaded Italy and imprisoned the Pope for six months. So the Pope's not in any hurry to get on the bad side of Spain. And this King Henry wants to divorce the daughter of the king of Spain. So I'm not going to recognize the divorce. And so Henry decides he's going to make himself his own Pope. He starts the Church of England and he puts himself on as the head. And he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. Uh, he would only eat meat, and by the time he died, he was 400 pounds, and he would have these open sores on his leg. Uh, you know how guys show off their biceps? Back then, guys would show off their calves, and they would wear these really tight stockings, right? So they'd all be covered up with their little calves. That would be their muscle, but they didn't have elastic, and so they would tie it. And so here he is, really, really big, and he's t- cutting off the circulation to his own legs, and um uh, but none of the doctors wanted to tell him he needed his leg amputated. You tell him. I'm not going to tell him. You do. You tell him. No, no. <laughs> so he died. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, when he was not, when he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon and he's fooling around with uh, wanting to make Anne Boleyn his mistress. And Anne Boleyn says, I'm not going to fool around. You're going to have to marry me, which means you're going to have to divorce Catherine. And so uh, they do. And Henry's advisors say, if you really want to break with Rome, you should get rid of that Latin Bible. Now, it's interesting. Three years earlier, Henry VIII had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for what? For translating the Bible into English. Now, when he's fooling around with Anne Boleyn and his advisors say, you know, if you really want to break with Rome, stop using that Latin Bible. Get yourself an English Bible. You're in England or your English language. And he goes, great, great, great. Go ahead. Where are they going to get an English Bible? They basically take William Tyndall's work and they just put another cover on it. Now, William Tyndall's last words before he died was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So, right, so three years later, the King of England basically takes William and he uh, spreads it all around. Now, this is the cover page of the great Bible. And if you look at the top, it's got Henry VIII, and he's on his throne giving the Bible to the clergy and to the bishops and lords or whatever. And they're like, oh, you're such a great guy. And he looks at this and he goes, I like that. So I want 11,000 copies all across England. And they they spread it around. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it. (laughs) And began to compare this Bible that's now in their own language They're comparing what the king is doing, divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church on earth. And they're like, so a group started that wanted to purify the church of England, and they were nicknamed the Puritans. So we got the Anglicans. The word Angle is the same as Ingle, like English and English. This was the Church of England. So we got the Anglican Church with the king at that. Now we got these Puritans that want to purify the Anglican Church. And obviously the king doesn't think he needs purifying, so he persecutes the Puritans. And then there's the separatists, and they 
have given up trying to purify the Church of England, and they're meeting in secret in barns and basements by candlelight, like illegal house churches in China. They flee to Holland, and then they decide to flee to America, and we call them pilgrims. So, England, the Bible is in the English language. That's great. But then the king decides, I'm still in charge. We're going to do it my way, and it's called the Act of Uniformity. And so everybody's got to pray the prayers that are in the common book of prayer and so forth. And uh, there was an Anglican archbishop named William Laud, and he would call, have people arrested and brought them into the star chamber. It's called the star chamber because there were stars on the ceiling. And they would torture people. They didn't have a Fifth Amendment where you cannot be forced to testify against yourself, right? And they would torture these people and not just twist their arms and everything. They would cut off their ear or cut their nose in half or brand them on the head with SL for seditious libel. And uh, they'd put them in the pillory in the town square and have them be mocked. Anyway, so um, meanwhile, the Muslims are still (laughs) advancing. And in 1565, uh, they control the entire Mediterranean, all of North Africa, all the Middle East, all of Turkey, all of Greece. And they want this little island of Malta so they can get Sicily and the rest of Italy. But they're defeated on September 11th, 1565. And then they have the largest navy on the Mediterranean. And in 1571, 230 Muslim ships Uh, And they're stopped by the Holy League, one of the few times Europeans fought together, Spaniards, Austrians, Genoans, and Venetians. And um, anyway, after the Battle of Lepanto, rather than freeing the rest of the Mediterranean from the Muslim control, Spain decides to take its invincible armada and squash the Reformation in England, right? So uh, got Henry VIII. His first wife was Catherine of Aragon. She had no son, but she did have a daughter. Daughter name was Mary. Mary was married to the new king of Spain, Philip II, the one the Philippines are named after. He, she only sees him once, and he comes to England thinking, oh, I'm married to the, the daughter of the king, so that sort of makes me the king, and the people of England really don't like him. And so he leaves, and she dies, but she... Um, But then Elizabeth takes the throne and Philip says, you know what? I want England back. And so he sends this invincible armada, hundreds of these ships. They're enormous ships. They got like three stories of guns on them and thousands of troops and cannons. And uh, and so they're headed toward England in 1588. Uh, Here's Queen Elizabeth. And she gives the most famous speech of her career. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and of a king of England, too. And think foul scorn that Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. By your valor, we shall have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, my kingdom and my people. And so what happens? Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, they're, they got small ships. But it's hard for the Spanish to catch them because these little bitty British ships are going all around. and They got these enormous ones, plus the Dutch help. And they'll do a hit and run. And they lured the Spanish ships toward the shores of Holland. And the Spaniards didn't know there were sandbars underneath. And these big ships would run aground. And then they're like stuck. And um, anyway, and then a hurricane comes and destroys what's left of the Spanish armada. And they're smashed on the coast of Scotland and Ireland. And um, had Spain won, there would have been no Puritans, 
No pilgrims, no New England, no United States. America would have been an extension of New Spain or Mexico, right? Spain controlled all of Central and Latin America, and they would have just made North America the same thing. But the Spanish Armada was sunk. England kept its independence and so forth. Now, Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations in the year 1776. He said the Spaniards, by virtue of the first discovery, claimed all America as their own. And such was the terror of their name that the greater part of the other nations of Europe were afraid to establish themselves in any other part of that great continent. But the defeat of their invincible armada put it out of their power to obstruct any longer the settlements of the other European nations. In the course of the 17th century, English, French, Dutch, Danes, and Swedes attempted to make some settlement in the New World. So it was like an Oklahoma land rush. It's like, hey, everybody, Spain's not as powerful as we thought. Let's go for it. So there's New France, and there's New Sweden, there's New Amsterdam, there's New England, right? They're all just taking their claims. So we're going to focus on the British, and they have a colony called Virginia. And uh, it, it started in 1607, and they have a lot of malaria and disease and Indian attacks and so forth, but it's still going on. 500 people die. I mean, they keep sending them over to help this colony. They keep dying, they keep dying, they keep dying. But So the pilgrims, uh, they were persecuted in England. One group of them sold all their property and got on a boat, and right before they left to Holland... The captain robbed them, turned them into the police because you couldn't leave the country without permission from the government. Um, And uh, anyway, so another bunch of pilgrims sell their land and arrange for a Dutch ship to meet them on the coast of England. And the men have the rowboats and they're stuffing everything on the boat. Meanwhile, someone snitched. The British soldiers come over the hill and capture the women and children who are waiting on shore. And the Dutch captain says, I can't fight the, the, the British. He pulls the anchor and sails away with the men. And for two years, they pass these pilgrim women and children from one court in England to another. Finally, a judge says, uh, just go home. They go, duh, we sold our homes. And that, so they put them on a boat, send them over to Holland, and they're reunited with their families. So it's a happy ending to that chapter. Anyway, so after they're in Holland for 12 years, the Spanish are threatening to attack, which they eventually do. Do you know how the Dutch defeated the Spanish? It was an 80-year war of independence for the Dutch. They broke the dikes, and the ocean water came in and flooded the Spanish army. Well, before that happened is when the pilgrims left Holland, went to England, and then they had two ships called the Speedwell and the Mayflower, and they sail for Jamestown. The Speedwell doesn't speed well, and they have to bring it back and recalk it, and it leaks again. They got to bring it back, and they, they ditch it, and they, get the May, they cram everybody on the Mayflower. Now they've just wasted a couple months, and now they're sailing in the winter, and it's, they're confined to a between deck. I mean, this little four-foot-high space for 66 days. Could you imagine four-foot-high space for 66 days? No windows, no privacy, you know. I mean, mean, the only redeeming factor was the ship used to be a wine ship rather than, you know, other things. So they had that, that smell versus some of the other smells. But, I mean, it was tossing around. And um, one young guy, uh, John Howland, went topside to get some fresh air just as a a freezing wave swept the deck, knocks him in the ocean. Luckily, a a rope was dragging, and he caught it, and they pulled him in. Anyway, so the pilgrims finally get to America, and they're 500 miles off course. And uh, they try to go south of Cape Cod, but 
If you look, the light colors there, those are sandbars. Over 3,000 shipwrecks on this 50-mile stretch. It's called an ocean graveyard. And so the pilgrim ship almost got stuck, and the captain barely backs out. He goes back to Cape Cod. He goes, everybody, get off the boat. You're going to have to spend your, the winter here, make your little settlement here, because there's no more sailing. And so the pilgrims say, well, uh, we have a problem. Uh, there's no king-appointed person on our boat to take charge. The whole world's ruled by kings. The king's controlling all these colonies, and there's no king-appointed person. And um, anyway, uh, a couple other things. So they get off in the winter. Half of them die the first winter. The next spring is when Squanto walks out of the woods and greets them. You know the story? I mean, could you imagine the dismay? Here's some, you know, British, French, Dutch would lure Indians on a boat, take them to Spain, sell them into slavery, and make a quick buck. Right? They weren't moral like the pilgrims were. And so this Squanto got kidnapped and sold, and he was purchased by some monks, hitchhikes his way across, they give him his freedom, hitchhikes his way to England. He gets a job and he works in England for years. And then he gets another job in Newfoundland. Finally, he finds somebody that's going to go down the coast of America, and they gets another job and they drop him off, only to find his entire tribe is dead. Now, this is six months before the pilgrims land. He's dejected. Right. What happened was three years earlier, a French ship was shipwrecked there and the sailors got ashore. But the Indians never left watching them and dogging them till they got the advantage, killed them all but three or four. Um, anyway, the disease, one of them must have had an illness, wiped out the tribe. So had Squanto not been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died. But here he is living with another tribe. And you can just imagine the scene. Uh, somebody comes into his teepee and says, hey, Squant, there's some English people wanting to start a settlement in your old stomping ground. He comes out of the woods. He speaks, oh, you guys from England? Yeah, yeah, I used to live there. <laughs> oh, St. Paul's? Yeah, the Wharf Street? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he says, oh, well, here? Oh, I grew up here. I know everything. There's a spring on the other side over there. This is how you catch fish, right? Salmon are going to spawn. Oh, and this is how you plant the corn. You make popcorn and everything. And this is how you catch beavers. They go, what's a beaver? And he goes, well, you're going to use the skins to pay back. It takes 40 years worth of beaver skins to pay back their debt for the boat ride, right? We never ask ourselves, who's paying for this boat ride? They had to borrow money. Anyway, so William uh, Bradford says that Squanto was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. Two years later, they're going through one of the bays. They're caught in a freezing storm. They have to put in, and uh, he says, here Squanto fell ill of Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take for a symptom of death. He bequeathed several of his belongings to his English friends, and then he begged Governor Bradford to pray for him, that he, that he would go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Right? The, they were pilgrims. They were Christians. They were living their Christian faith, and he says, I want what you got. I believe he became a Christian. Anyway. So the, the pilgrims, uh, they're having a problem because they don't know who's going to be in charge. The captain's telling them to get off. They were expecting you to go to Jamestown. Now, a little background. There's three types of colonies. One is a company colony, the Virginia Company and the King and the, the British East India Company. It's, an, it's a neat thing. The king doesn't have to spend a dime. He just gives some rich guys a monopoly. They'll take the risk. They'll put out the money. And he gets, he gets a percentage of what comes in. Uh, so the Virginia company went bankrupt. They threw it in the king's lap. He has to send over a royal crown governor. Now the king's ruling directly. And uh, then the third type of colony is a proprietary colony where the king gives the whole thing to a friend as his property. So Lord Baltimore gets all of Maryland. William Penn gets all of Pennsylvania. And so 
the pilgrims land, what they were facing was none of these three. It wasn't a company colony, royal colony. It was just them on a boat that's 500 miles off course. And so they do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. And uh, it says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws as shall be thought most meet, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. The whole world is ruled by kings and czars and sultans and, and you know, chieftains. And here uh, you got this little bitty group in this little hull of this little boat. It's like a little womb. And what they do is a polarity change. Instead of a top-down form of government ruled by these kings that want to rule the world, it's a bottom-up form of government where we covenant ourselves together and we decide what laws we're going to do, right? It's the difference between a dead pyramid and a living tree where every root and every little capillary root, every cell is sucking in nourishment to keep this thing alive. And uh, where did the pilgrims get this idea? Their pastor, John Robinson. He was not a king-appointed Anglican pastor. He was a separatist pastor. He's considered one of the founders of the Congregational Church. What's that? That's where everybody in the congregation fasts and prays and votes. Or sort of the New, New, uh, New Testament model, when the apostles had a decision, they'd all get together and fast and pray, and then they'd vote. And so, uh, and so this painting with Elder William, William Brewster holding the open Bible, it hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And so they use the word compact, Mayflower Compact. Compact means commonwealth or covenant. And this idea of a covenant was promoted by the different reformers, William Brewster and the pastor John Robinson write, the pilgrims were knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord. So we so hold ourselves tied to all care of each other's good. This is a church body. Uh, Later, John Winthrop says, we are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. We ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. And um, so the pilgrims are successful. And after 10 years, 1620 to 1630, it heats up in England for the Puritans. The king doesn't like being purified. And so he Heats it, he makes it so uncomfortable that in the beginning in 1630 to 40, 16,000 Puritans leave England and settle in Massachusetts. There's only a couple hundred pilgrims, but now we got 16,000. Now, something happens. In England, the Puritans did not like the king telling them how to have church and sending spies into their churches. And, but in America, these Puritans are like, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing for the government to tell the church how to have church because we are the government. There are 16,000 of us. We can pretty well decide. And so you had the Puritans began to institute religious uniformity. And uh, so you had a Reverend John Lothrop. He and his church flee. He says, no, the government's still not supposed to tell us how to have church. And he and his church found a new place called Barnstable, Massachusetts. Another guy is Reverend Roger Williams. He and his church flee and found Providence, Rhode Island, and the first Baptist church in America. A Reverend John Wheelwright, he and his church flee and found Exeter, New Hampshire. And then Reverend Thomas Hooker, he and his church flee and they found Hartford, Connecticut. This is unique on the planet. You have kings with armies that are conquering and taking control. And here you have little pastors with their little churches starting communities. 
And um, so where did the pastors get this idea that people could rule themselves? Uh, Here's Calvin Coolidge in 1926 says, Placing every man on a plane where he acknowledged no superiors, he must inevitably choose his own rulers through a system of self-government. It's like, okay, we're all equal. Great. Uh, Who's going to take care of the streets? Uh, How are we going to decide that? Uh, So we have to come up with a system of how equal people vote for somebody to take charge of different things, right? And so this is 50 years before Europe's Age of Enlightenment. All the secular scholars, all the founders, they got their idea from the secular enlightenment. Okay, we're talking 50 years before that. It's a pastor with their church. And so Thomas Hooker flees to Hartford, Connecticut. And while he's there, the church members say, Pastor, how do we do the government thing? So he gives an address in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid, Firstly, in the Free Consent of the People. Again, this is revolutionary. It's a a bottom-up form rather than the top-down form. He goes on, The privilege of election belongs to the people, according to the blessed will and law of God. Those who have the power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is also in their power to set the bounds and limitations of the power. And so this influenced the Declaration, which says governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's the drawing from the bottom up. And then the Constitution says, what? We the people. It's us doing this thing. We're not asking some king's permission. Thomas Hooker's sermon was written down, and it is called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. It was Connecticut's state constitution from 1639 up until 1818. They used the pastor's sermon. And uh, that's why Connecticut's called the Constitution State. Got it on their license plate. Uh, Ed was telling me that he's from Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, here's a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Did you know that over in England, they think that this pastor is the father of American democracy? Did you know that? Here's another plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. Here's Thomas Hooker's statue in Hartford holding a Bible. And at the base, it says, leading his people through the wilderness. Uh, On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Here's another plaque in Hartford. Thomas Hooker, uh, famous sermon, foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And then at this site, they did the fundamental orders of Connecticut. What do the fundamental orders say? Weary people are gathered together. The word of God requires that to maintain the peace, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God. The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Sounds like the Mayflower. We covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic. It says we can join ourselves to be as a state commonwealth. Why? To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. And I love this line. The governor shall administer justice according to the laws here established. And for what thereof, according to the rule of the word of God. In other words, if we don't have a law on something, just follow the Bible. <laughs> and here's another plaque in Hartford. Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present constitution of the United States is modeled. A clear line that this pastor's church government affected our U.S. government. So in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it's the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say, oh, pastors don't get involved in politics when it's sort of the pastor and his church is like the only body there? And it's his sermon that they reused to make the Constitution? And um, now in New England, 
These pastors realized that the kingdom of God could never be forced from the top down. They saw kings in Europe were burning people at the stake for not believing the way they did. Yet they saw that Jesus never forced anyone to believe in him. He said something difficult one time. Many disciples walked with him no more. Turns to Peter, says, you want to go too? Peter says, well, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus didn't run after him with a sword and say, get back here or I'll chop your head off. No, he said, you can go. So if Jesus never forced anyone to follow him, we can't. And so the pastors in New England said, well, if the kingdom of God can never be forced from the top down, how's it ever going to happen? Well, they thought that if the majority of the people held godly values and elected representatives with their values, then laws would be passed reflecting those values. And the values of the kingdom could come voluntarily from the bottom up, not forcibly from the top down. And so this is the, yes, so this is the comparison, the change. Does power flow like for 6,000 years from the creator to the king and he dispenses it as God's lieutenant to the people? Or does power flow directly from the creator to each individual person? And then the, all of us persons together choose who we want to carry out our will. And if they don't do what's right, we get rid of them and get somebody else. Calvin Coolidge said this, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunity to put them into action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. So uh, a couple quotes, Patricia Benami, New York University, said the colonists were about 98% Protestant. Uh, the British statesman Edmund Burke said, all Protestantism is a sort of dissent, but the religion most prevalent in our northern colonies is the refinement on the principle of resistance. It is the dissidence of dissent and the Protestantism of the Protestant religion. Sam Adams signed the declaration saying, this day I trust the reign of political Protestantism will commence. So the founders of America look back to ancient England, right? Magna Carta. Tie in the hands of the king, uh, the Roman Republic, until Julius Caesar found a way to make himself dictator for life. The Athenian democracy, until Alexander the Great's dad found he could bribe citizens of Athens with money under the table and they'd betray their own city. But America's founders ultimately looked ultimately look back to ancient Israel. That's right. Around 1400 BC, give or take a century or so, is when Israel comes out of Egypt. And for that first 400 years, before they get King Saul, they are the first nation in recorded history with no king. A nation of millions of people with no king, and it worked for 400 years. So the U.S. Constitution was written, needed to be ratified by the states. Eight states had ratified it. They needed nine. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but it was having a deadlock at its convention. So Harvard President Samuel Langdon gives an address titled The Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. He says, instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union and see this application plainly. And so what happened was after his sermon, they voted and they ratified it. They were the ninth state. The U.S. Constitution went into effect. After this sermon, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states, a clear connection between how Israel influenced the founding of America and the New England pastors. So the first 400 years, Israel had no king. Everyone was equal before the law. 
And the law said there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is to be treated the same. Male, female, made in the image of the Creator. Even the stranger living amongst you is under the same law that you're under. This is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. That everyone you see is equal to you. There's, there's no royal family to butter up next to where you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. You're called treason or you're a slave. There's none of that because there's no king. It's the beginning of the concept of equality. Israel was the beginning of the concept of tolerance. What do you mean? They, they were convinced, and rightly so, that they were worshiping the one true God. But they never felt compelled to force anyone to become an Israelite. They didn't say, get your lamb and you better show up. that." No. If somebody wanted to proselytize or become one, fine. But there was no effort for them to get an army together and say, we're going to go around the world and conquer the world and make everybody submit to Yahweh. Right? They didn't do that. Um, Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. Wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he will take away the land and kill you. In Israel, the land was permanently titled to the families. If they got in a pinch and sold it every 50 years, the land reverted back to the family. This prevented a dictator from gathering up all the land and putting the people back into slavery. They called the promised land because the people got to own land. Now, if you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. <laughs> you got capital. You worked hard to save it, right? Um, is ancient Israel had no police. Everyone was taught the law. Everyone participated in enforcing the law. Sort of like we do today with, with traffic, right? Somebody, you know, <laughs> pulls over without using their blinker and somebody honks their horn and, you know, or, or a, uh, a mom watching a bunch of neighborhood kids. She has no problem co- correcting somebody else's kid, right? You know, and so everybody participated in enforcing the laws. It's like everybody was deputized. Ancient Israel had no standing army. You have a king. He has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia and armed and ready at a moment's notice to defend his family and his community. Israel had no prisons. Remember Joseph wasting away in prison in Egypt for a couple of years? In Israel, when someone committed a crime, they get the elders of the city together right then and there, and they have the trial. Now, there's a city of refuge you can run away to, you know, to await a trial. Uh, Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. Remember Egypt? People were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a handout. In Israel, when, some, when people harvested their field, they left the gleanings for the poor people to take, care, to, you know, to take from. This way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out to those who can help them stay in power. Israel had a system of honesty. God hates unjust weights and measures, became a basis for commerce. And Israel got to choose their own leaders. They did? Yeah, Moses spake unto the children of Israel. How can I myself alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. It was an election process within the tribe. And so anyone could be raised up into leadership. Gideon was from a nobody family. Here's Deborah, a woman who's not related to anybody. She's not related to a pharaoh or a king. She's just a woman. She knows the law. She's honest. The reputation spreads. She sits under a tree, and people make their way all the way across the country to have her hear the case, and she knows the law, and she decides it according to the law. And so uh, 
So this quote from Harvard President Samuel Langdon's great says the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages, government upon Republican principles from abject slavery, a mere mob to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. They go from 400 years of slavery. I mean, they uneducated. They're just a mob. And they go from that to the most unique form of government that planet Earth had ever seen. It's a bottom-up form of government rather than another king type of government. Anyway, uh, as much more I can say, but Israel was the first nation that could read. Did you know that uh, in Sumeria they had over 1,500 cuneiform characters? But it was just for kings and scribes to keep track of everything the king owned. Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. Did you know only 1% of Egypt could read? Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. And um, China had 10,000 pictograms. And so if you want to be a ruling class, you've got to keep the people ignorant, sort of like in America prior to the Civil War. They had laws in the southern states to prevent people from teaching slaves to read. Frederick Douglass ta- talks about his being taught the alphabet by the slave master's sister-in-law. And the slave master yells at her and tells her not to. And so anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, ancient writing's main function was to facilitate the enslavement of other human beings. So when Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law that's ever, that says everyone's equal. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. So easy to learn. Kids could learn it. No longer is reading and writing the secret knowledge of this elite class that's controlling everybody. Everybody can read. It's like we got access to the Internet. Everybody can get educated, right? And um, so the priest taught everyone to read and to read the law. And there's some quotes here. So um, if the spectrum of power, we already did this. So one side's total government. The other side's no government. No government is anarchy unless the people have internal morals. It's like everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. How should I act, right? But wait a second. Why would you follow an internal moral? What would motivate you to to deny yielding to a selfish temptation? Ancient Israel had the key ingredient, a God who is watching everyone, He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, uh, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no policeman following everybody around. Maximum liberty. Not only works with the God of the Bible. An Islamic Allah God says there's an infidel woman there. Nobody's around. You can rape her. It's okay. The God of the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A Democrat candidate for president, William Jennings Bryan, said, a religion which teaches personal responsibility to God gives strength to morality. There is a powerful restraining influence in the belief that an all-seeing eye scrutinizes every thought and word and act of the individual. William Lynn, first house chaplain, says, let my neighbor persuade himself there is no God. He will pick my pocket, break not only my leg, but my neck. So Reagan, without God, there is no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. So if you get rid of this God, all you have is rules. Why follow him? Some will out of habit. Others are going to say, forget this. And they're going to give in to their passions, like taking a bobber off a fishing line. and The lead weight hits the bottom of the lake, right? And people are going to start robbing and stealing and smashing windows and setting buildings on fire and having lawless mobs in the street doing random killings and so forth. And then people are going to say, we need the government to step in and restore order. And somebody will come in and the government says, okay, we're going to collect everybody's guns. And yeah, they'll restore order. But when the dust settles, you'll have fundamentally transformed your country from the people ruling themselves back to a king. 
And so for the people to rule, they need to, what happened in Israel's case when the priest stopped teaching the law, Eli had his own son sleeping with women in the tent of meeting, another Levite with a graven image, another Levite with a concubine, he gets raped and chopped in 12 pieces and so forth. Anyway, it says every man did what was right in their own eyes, total chaos. And they all go to Samuel, the prophet. And they said, we want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. Samuel cries and he, the Lord tells him, they have not rejected thee, but they've rejected me. But I should not reign over them. They get King Saul, who turns around and kills most of the priests. Anyway, so have you ever seen a crane and your eyes are drawn to the high part? Well, that's the success and prosperity of a person or a country. But you don't notice on the bottom side is this little bitty thing, a counterweight, and that's virtue. The more successful a person is, the more they need to have that private virtue, or they're going to fool around and they're going to lose their marriage and family and career and reputation, right? You got some sports hero and he's a really great guy. And then all of a sudden he's caught doing something wrong and it screws up his whole career. You got some Hollywood actor and he's really powerful and doing all kinds of stuff. And then he's got this, he doesn't have private morals and so forth. And all of a sudden becomes public and it ruins his whole career. So as a nation, the more successful a nation is, the more it needs private personal morality or the whole thing will fall over in a minute. And um, so um, most powerful was the king of England. America's founder decided to split away, took the power of a king, broke it into three branches. And I give a little illustration about cutting up a brownie, but I don't have time. Uh, <laughs> selfish boys want to each get the biggest piece. And so they keep each other in check. But I'm watching the clock. So who's the king in America? Signer of the Constitution, Governor Moore said the magistrate is not the king. The people are the king. Chief Justice John Jay, the people are the sovereign of this country. Abraham Lincoln, the people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. Uh, signer of the Constitution, James Wilson, sovereignty resides in the people. They have not parted with it. Grover Cleveland said the sovereignty of 60 millions of free people is the working out of the divine right of man to govern himself, a manifestation of God's plan concerning the human race. Teddy Roosevelt, in no other place, in no other time, has the experiment of government of the people, by the people, for the people been tried on so vast a scale as here in our own country. So, uh, people are the king. Uh, imagine you're visiting a king in the Old Testament. Maybe going through the streets of Jerusalem and you see murder, rape, and crime. And you get into the king's chamber and he's all worried. And he looks up at you and he says, did you saw that crime coming in here? I wish somebody would fix it. You like reach over, tap him on the shoulder, say, excuse me, you're the king. This is your kingdom. I think you're the one accountable to God to fix it. That's like somebody in America watching TV, seeing all the terrible stuff going on, saying, I wish somebody would come along and fix it. Hello, reach through the TV tube and tap you on the shoulder. You're the king. You're the one accountable to God to fix this mess. Well, I need somebody to tell me what to do. Since when does the king sit on his throne and say, can somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do here? Hey, butler, come here. What am I supposed to do? No, it's your job to hear from God, get educated on the issues, and you tell your representatives what needs to be done. You're the king. And so we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. A republic is the people are king ruling through representatives. And so we're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. And so when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest this system where I get to participate in being a co-regent, a co-ruler. I don't like that. I want somebody else to dictate my life. James Wilson said, every citizen forms a part of the sovereign power. He possesses a vote. Not to vote is to abdicate the throne. Some say, ah, oh, don't bother voting. Just trust God. I love this quote from Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull. To trust altogether to the justice of our cause without our utmost exertion would be tempting providence. And so uh, people are the king who are the counselors to the king. Um, 379 AD, you have a Christian Roman emperor, Theodosius, going to church in Milan, Italy, and the, the pastor is St. Ambrose. Could you imagine being St. Ambrose and having the emperor in your church on Sunday? Guess what? That's exactly what we have in America. 
Pew Forum, PEW, says that 70% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. They could turn any election any way they wanted. And since they're Christian, they go to church at least every now and then, which makes the pastors in America, in a sense, counselors to the king. Right? The people are king, 70% are Christian, so they go to church and they're sitting there. So you have two types of counselors to the king. One tells the king to go to sleep, right? and the other says to wake up. And so have you ever seen the movie The Lord of the Rings? There's a scene of a King Theodon, and he has a spell cast on him, gray hair, gray eyes, he's decrepit and out of it, and he has two counselors. One is this greasy guy named Wormtongue, who's whispering in the king's ear saying, stay asleep, don't wake up, don't get involved, shirk your responsibility, pretty soon it'll all be over. And then there's another counselor named Gandalf, and he like casts the devil out of him, and right before your eyes, the king starts to come too. And he looks around the room, and he says, Dark, you've been my dreams of late. It's like, yeah, you've been out of it with a spell cast on you. And he says, maybe you'll remember your strength if you take your sword. And so the pastor's job is to wake up the king, right? The king is sitting in the pews, and uh, church members don't just have the right to vote. You're going to be held accountable to God for what happens. And uh, even Martin Luther King Jr. said, the, the church is the conscience of the state. So, and a couple quotes to end with, Chief Justice John Jay, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. If I were to sum up the greatness of America, it is this line right here. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourselves. There's no king in between you and your creator telling you what you can and cannot do, where you can and have to live, and what church you have to go to, and who you have to marry. You get to decide. Reagan put it this way. In this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. We're talking world history tonight. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time, In all the thousands of years, 6,000 years of man's relation to man, the founding fathers established the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. You and God get to decide what you're going to do with your life. Uh, This great quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, America appears like a last effort of divine providence in behalf of the human race. Well, I'll end with that. And thank you so much for allowing me to speak to you tonight. So do I turn it back over to, to Tony, or, or should I keep talking? It's dangerous. I can keep talking. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this one. Okay. This is a great quote. Um, in, in crisis, people turn to crisis, but it's also in times of crisis that leaders are raised up. We're facing crisis, so um, God's going to raise up leaders. So what are the stories we love best in the Bible? It's when God's people are in a hopeless situation, and he raises up little nobodies. To make a difference. Uh, Gideon and Jebsa, Dan, you know, Daniel and so forth. So this is our turn. But um, do, you, do you want to ask questions? I, I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to drag on too long. But I'll take one or two if you have some. Yes. Right, so James Buchanan, not Pat Buchanan, James Buchanan got the Nobel Prize because he figured out what motivates politicians. They want to get elected. Really, he won the Nobel Prize. He goes, okay, we're going to study economic policy and politicians set the policy, and they always tend to vote for uh, bigger budget items, but they don't 
vote for the corresponding tax increases to pay for the bigot budget items. And he notices that if an election is coming up, that works into the equation and they'll always tend to increase the spending in their district because it'll help their reelection. And so all that gibberish just boils down to the fact that politicians will do whatever it takes to get reelected. So that means that if you can help or hinder their reelection, you got their attention. And so if you let these politicians know that if they're not going to do what you want them to do, you are going to make a really big uh, noise and really make it uncomfortable for them. And uh, and they're going to want to do everything they can to, 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 to appease you. Uh, right. So. That's that's one thing. Um, I don't know if that helps or not. So um, uh, and I'm happy to hang around the book table and, and talk for as long as anyone wants. Does anyone else have a, a, a question or comment? Um, yes. Right. So I have a book back there called The Original 13 for the original 13 states and then another one called Backfired. So every colony was started by a different Christian denomination. Virginia was Anglican. Massachusetts was Puritan. Rhode Island was Baptist. New York was Dutch Reformed. Delaware and New Jersey were originally Swedish Lutheran. Maryland was Catholic. Pennsylvania was Quaker. Connecticut and New Hampshire were Congregationalists. Remember Thomas Hooker? And they did not get along. And they would tar and feather each other and chase each other out of each other's colonies. And then the revolution started. They all had to work together against the king. After the revolution, sort of like Charles V of Spain had to work together with the Protestants in order to have the united front against the Muslims. So these 13 colonies, they didn't like each other, but they had to work together against the king. After the revolution, they decided to tolerate each other. First Protestants, I read through every state constitution, nine of the original 13 required you to be a Protestant Christian to hold state office. I mean, there's North Carolina. The Christian Protestant religion shall be deemed the established religion of the state. No, no person who denies the Christian religion shall hold any office. I mean, it's right in there. Uh, and then in 1835, North Carolina changed it to say all you had to do was be a Christian, right? Instead of a Protestant, you had to just play. That was in effect in North Carolina up until 1868 when they said all you had to do was believe in God. And guess what? It's still in their constitution, but the Supreme Court said they can't enforce it. But it's like, where does the atheist fit in? They don't. <laughs> Right? It was only in 1960 that the Supreme Court in Torcaso v. Watkins, a guy wanted to be a notary in Maryland, but the state constitution said you had to say, so help me God, and he didn't want to say that. And uh, they weren't going to let him be notary, and the Supreme Court says, okay, they, you can't enforce that part of your constitution. This was 1960, so they, they weren't involved. And even to this day, only 1% of the country identifies itself as atheist. So when you have the 1% demanding that its will be shoved down on the rest of the country, that's called a tyranny, right? And it's because we've been asleep. So, um, so every colony, every, every nine of the original 13, you had to be Protestant. Then the Irish potato famine happens. Early 1800s, millions of Irish Catholics come to America. The Catholic percent goes from 2% to 20%. And Catholics go from only being allowed in three states to now the state. Each state expanded religious freedom at its own speed, like a racetrack with 13 lanes. And you had Rhode Island and New York and Pennsylvania way out in front being really tolerant. And you had Massachusetts and Connecticut. You could not hold office in Massachusetts prior to 1833 unless you were a Congregationalist Christian. 
It's right in there. You couldn't hold office in Connecticut up until 1818 unless you were a Congregationalist Christian. And, um, and so their fear was that the federal government would pick one denomination and make it the national one, which is what every country in Europe did. England was Anglican, Scotland was Presbyterian, Holland was Dutch Reformed. And they thought that, that, you know, whether the Presbyterians or Episcopals or somebody was going to corner the market and get their denomination voted. They didn't want a federal Walmart denomination coming in town, putting out of business their mom and pop denomination. You know, does that make sense? So anyway, well, I've really enjoyed it. And um, again, uh, AmericanMinute.com is my website, and I'll be glad to hang around the book table. And uh, if you buy one, it's $20, but if you buy two, then you get two free. So thank you so much. God bless you.